Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. What's Wagner's rule of life number four? <laughs> Nothing good happens outside a strip club at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry, I understand I might be like a dog with a bone on this, but this is just fundamentally wrong. It is an insult, but let's tee this up. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 414-799-1620. I'm sorry, I think this is absolutely ridiculous. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Eric Bilstadt, have you been following the latest controversy involving the Game of Thrones? Uh, the Starbucks cup? Well, it's not a Starbucks cup, but yes, the coffee cup. You've been following the story? Yeah, sure. Okay, I, I just, it, to me, this is an illustration of people either way too into something or with way too much time on their hands. For people who haven't been following, Game of Thrones is, of course, the big HBO series that's mm-hmm. wrapping up. Two more episodes left. I only watched the first year because I, I read the first book, and I'm one of these guys that I don't like to watch stuff if I might read the other book. So okay. I will, at some point in time, if I read the books, and the problem is, it's it's really heavy science fantasy, and you really got to concentrate on it. But at some point in time, I might go back. So I have not watched it, but I, I follow it peripherally mm-hmm. just because sure. it's such a part of pop culture. So there's three episodes left as of last Sunday. So the show air, airs last Sunday. And, of course, this is set in some medieval fantasy type of world. And 17 minutes into the show, there's a, a feast that's going on. As some, yeah, some characters are celebrating a, a victory. And... S- and people start to notice that on on one of the tables, there is – now, originally they were saying it's a Starbucks coffee cup. It turns out it's not a Starbucks oh, okay. coffee cup, yeah. but it is a – it is a, you know, modern coffee cup, you know, with a plastic top on it that some stagehand had left on the table, you know, before they got ready to shoot the scene. And so this is, of course – this just takes over oh, yeah. kind of social media oh, and all, yeah. right? Now, I guess I was thinking, first of all, who noticed? I mean, do you ever would you ever watch a show? It's obscure. you got to really be concentrating. Would you ever watch something that closely enough that you would notice it? No, but I'm not surprised that people caught it right away. People are just weird like that. You know, they certain people watch for different things. Continuity is a thing for some weirdos, and they, they spotted it. Right, so they, they saw it. And then, of course, then it kind of took off a life of its own, and people were saying, oh, was this, a, was this product placed? for Starbucks and things like that. And Starbucks going, no. And actually, like I say, it wasn't a Starbucks cup. It was just... You know, it was just one of these these typical plastic cups that you get with the the top right. on it. I just don't know how you leave that there with all the editing that you do, with all the time you spend on that. How that cup was left there without anyone noticing without it. That just seems it. a little strange to me. All right, well, have you seen the follow up to that? You know what HBO has now done? Uh oh, they have gone and they have digitally removed the coffee cup. <laughs> so if you watch. Game of Thrones, you know, in any subsequent broadcast, oh, thank it, it's it's gone. It's it, it's kind of like, um, you know, like in Star Wars, the original Star Wars. Didn't they have like the job? They had a, a couple of these characters that were like smoking cigarettes and things like that. They, they were they were, had cigarettes, and then of course our, our styles changed, and they went back and they digitally digitally altered some of these okay. things. So that that is the follow up. If if you if like if you DVR'd the Game of Thrones thing Sunday night and you haven't seen it, you can go back and presumably you'll be able to see the coffee cup. If you watch episode three of season eight of Game of Thrones anytime moving forward, it's gone. 
Thank goodness. Now the integrity can return. Well, it, it is, and I, I wanted to do that as, a, as a, I wanted to do that as a consumer service or customer service because I'm, I'm trying to picture somebody that's like heard about this. Hey, Mabel, there's that coffee cup there, and then you're waiting to the 17 minute point, and you're you're, you're watching it like on, on Thursday night, going, "Wait a second, I don't see any of that coffee cup," and you'll think you're crazy. No, they have taken it out. So that's the type of service that we perform here on the Wagner Show. But on the other hand, if you did DVR it and you've got it from Sunday night still, you might have a collector's piece there because you've, you know, I, I, I don't know, download that baby onto a DVD or something. And then, you know, maybe you're going to have something that you can sell because later on, because you've, you've got the, you've got the, uh, the thing. I'm just saying, I'm here to cooperate. We have a very interesting and a very eclectic show today. We're going to talk about some very serious stuff. We're going to talk about some light stuff, a lot of local things. And we are following this story, the breaking news story of the, the shooting involving, um, people who confronted, picked, apparently picked the wrong people to confront. Now, here, here's the background of this. Last Friday, there was this horrible story. This the 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 person who is accused of this is a 23 year old guy named Victor uh, Centron. This happened on on the South Side. It was 27th and Forest Home. Um, Centron, about three o'clock in the afternoon, pulls up to a car that's being driven by somebody named Jose Rodriguez Castro, and Castro is apparently dating Centron's ex girlfriend. So Cintron is upset that the girlfriend has left him and is now with this other guy. Cintron pulls up next to the car that they were in, pulls out a 9mm handgun, and starts firing indiscriminately, um, shoots at least 21 shots into the car and into other cars, ends up uh, Mr. Rodriguez Castro is hit eight times and, and is killed. Um, as a result of the shooting. But, but Cintron doesn't just hit, you know, the guy he's shooting at. Three other occupied cars in the area are hit as well. And then Cintron goes on, on the lam. He, he's a fugitive and the police obviously have been looking for him, uh, you know, since this happened on Friday. All right. So this is what happens this morning. And this is the way the Journal Sentinel reports the story. Milwaukee police officers had, had staked, they're, they're looking for Centron. Obviously, there's a warrant out for his arrest for homicide. Um, so they're staking out an area, um, where they, they think he might have been. These officers are in plain clothes. Okay. So they're staking out the area. Um, according to the police chief, again, they're watching a house where Centron may have been hiding. The officers who are in plain clothes were approached by two subjects, one of whom was armed. Um, the officers opened fire and at least one of the suspects was shot and died as a result. It's unclear if the suspects knew Cintron or if they randomly approached the plainclothes officers. So we don't know if this was all con- connected at this point in time to the guy who's wanted for murder or if this was just a situation where some guys on the street saw a couple people and thought that they might be easy marks for a robbery, not realizing they were plainclothes police officers. Um, more details will be emerging, and, and we'll continue to keep you abreast of this. If it is that second scenario where 
These were just people who thought, hey, you know, these guys look like they're going to be easy targets. Let's go rob them, not realizing they were plainclothes Milwaukee police officers. I think it would be fair to say that they, they certainly picked the wrong people to do this to. If, in fact, it was related to the homicide investigation, well, that's a whole other story as well. We'll continue to keep you updated. Okay, when we come back. If your car is damaged by one of the thousands of potholes, what obligation should the city have to you? Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. I'm not going to bury the lead on this one. I think the city of Milwaukee has an obligation to compensate you for damage that's done to your car because of city potholes that haven't been fixed. I, I think there is the obligation to do that. And before you should consider spending $164 million to expand the stupid trolley line by two miles, maybe you could think of, I don't know, maybe taking care of the people whose cars are being devastated. Okay, here are the numbers. Right now, and again, I, I understand that the, the weather around here, especially when you have you know a terrible late winter and a non-existent spring, the weather is very tough on the roads. Here is the deal. 2019, so the first four months of 2019, the city of Milwaukee has received 8,000, 8,000 claims for reported potholes, 8,000, to give you a perspective Last year, the city had about 3,000. So that shows you how bad the problem has gotten. Of the 8,000 reports, there's a big pothole on the street. So far, the city has received 45 claims from people saying that their car has been damaged because of a pothole and wanting the city to pay. Total dollars requested for pothole damage, $28,000. The average amount for pothole damage is 632 bucks. So what that means is, on average, somebody who files a claim saying that their car has been damaged because it hit a pothole is asking for $632. Of the 45 claims, 42 of the claim, I'm sorry, 42 tires have been claimed to be blown out. So that, that might be two tires. Most likely it's going to be like one tire. But you get an idea of the scope of this. Now, Gru, who's producing the show today and always, would you like to guess, all right, of this information, 45 claims so far against the city, $28,000 in total damage, average damage amount, $632, 42 tires blown out. Would you like to guess how much money the city has paid out thus far on these pothole claims? Mm, Zero. Zero. Yes. Take $10 out of petty cash. You are correct. They have paid zero out. They also intend to pay zero out. What happened is, in 2011, the state legislature repealed this law that held the city to be responsible. All right? That law went away. So there is the Judiciary Committee of the Milwaukee Common Council, and it's chaired by Alderman Mark Borkowski. You know, the city has the ability, despite the fact that the law, state law, no longer requires them to do it, the city has the ability to decide who gets paid and who doesn't. So far, the city has just decided that as a practical matter, they are not going to pay any claims. And I don't believe they have ever paid a claim since 2011. Um, They could. They could if they wanted to. But... 
they have decided not to. Matter of fact, the chairman of the committee, the alderman, does an interview on today's TMJ4, and they asked him if he thought it was unfair that people whose cars are seriously damaged by these unfixed potholes aren't being compensated. He says, yeah, I agree, it's unfair. So then the follow-up question is, well, why aren't you fixing them then? And he says, it's simple, we, we don't have the money. <laughs> so in other words, you know, we, it's not that, and a matter, matter of fact, it's not that they don't have the money, it's that they are making a policy choice that somebody who sustains five or six hundred dollars of damage to your car because of a pothole that the city hasn't fixed, many of whom, many of these potholes, of course, people have known about for a while, unless you unsuspectingly drive through one, the city is making the decision that we choose, not that they don't have the money, if they're making the decision they choose not to pay you because, I don't know, we'd rather spend this money on other things like the trolley. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If your car is damaged by a pothole on the streets of Milwaukee, in particular, a pothole that people have reported but has not been fixed, does the city have an obligation to compensate you either in whole or in part for the damage to your car? And now, for example, there's nothing that says the city couldn't say, you know, all right, we're, if, if your car is damaged to the tune of $2,000, we're not going to pay for that. But, you know, we, we will give you up to 500 bucks. I mean, they could do that. State law apparently gives them the discretion to, doesn't require them to, but there's nothing stopping the city from saying, yeah, you know, we knew this was a bad pothole. We've understood that there's a lot of these potholes out there. This one pothole we know has been responsible for at least 12 blown tires. We haven't been able to get out to fix it. I think at the very least, the city should be making at least some sort of payments to people for their failure to fix known potholes if it, in fact, causes damage. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 414-799-1620. Tell you what, let me take a quick break. Give Gru a chance to line up the calls. We're back to discuss in a minute. Like I said, maybe it's not... Maybe if you got $2,000 worth of damage to your car, maybe you don't pay the whole 2000 but could you set something saying, okay, if you legitimately have damage caused by potholes, we'll pay up to 500 bucks. Wouldn't that be the right thing to do? If you're on the line, please hold on. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Here's a text, Jeff. I couldn't agree with you more. I was wondering, though, if Mayor Tom Barrett and others had an accident with their vehicle, would they have to shell out money out of their own pocket? For repairs. Well, it depends if they're driving a city vehicle or not. David in Allenton. David, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, my opinion on it is that being a homeowner, if someone were to be injured on my property, and there's been a couple court cases where people have been injured on people's property, they the homeowner has to pay out if they know that there is a legitimate problem with their property. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure what law that Milwaukee thinks they can get out of, why they own the roads and they're not putting any sort mm-hmm. of precautionary markings mm-hmm. up saying you cannot drive on these roads how they're getting out of from paying well let me give i mean let's it, well, the, the reason is because they're they're the city and there's this thing called governmental immunity but and let, let's go back to your first point and, and let's make it even more precise let's say you've got a driveway and you have a giant sinkhole in your driveway that you know about 
and you've known about it for a while and you haven't fixed it and you have somebody that pulls into your driveway and they drive up the driveway and boom they go into the sinkhole and they do a thousand dollars worth of damage to their car you are exactly right there's going to be a claim against you for having that sinkhole in your driveway that is correct i've asked that question to an attorney and that's what i was told yeah yeah (laughs) right i do have two potholes in my gravel driveway and I have some people that come in and out of there, and I've been told that. Right, I- so, exactly, because it's you know about it. It's a condi- It's a known condition. No, no. Thanks for the call. No, you're you you are right. Now, the law with regard to the obligation that government has is different. But but yeah, if you if if you've got that no known defect, that known danger on your property, and you don't fix it, and somebody gets hurt, yeah, you're going to be liable. Joe and Jackson. Joe, you're on WTMJ. Jeff, I couldn't disagree with you more on this one. I mean, I just, I, I, I think you're totally, I'm so totally missing the boat on this. You have to remember that that where where was the revenue cut off to the city in the first place? The shared revenue in the city was cut was drastically cut off through Scott Walker. And these people are really trying to make this an issue of of the city of Milwaukee government, which is obviously led by Democrats because they want to turn Scott holes or potholes into into democratic democratic issue. But you and I both know. No, I don't think the people. I don't think the pe- I don't think the people whose tires are blowing out care if they're Republicans or Democrats. Oh, they, they care that the potholes aren't fixed and they're out seven hundred dollars. And, and you know what? As as valid as that point may be, then they have to go to the right people. Who did you say? You, you said it yourself earlier on in in the segment where. Well, you made a point that the state legislator... Was the state legislature said that the city didn't have to pay, but the city could if they want. The city is making the decision that they don't care, you're you're out of luck. Based on strapped resources because well, of the shared revenue. That's well, no, 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 it's not shared. You could, you could take, no, 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 don't plead poverty. You've got money for the trolley. No, no, you're not going to sell me on that one. It is a priority decision that they are, are making. You know, for example, so far, $28,000 in damage claims, 45 claims thus far. All right, that, that's, let's say you, you put a limit, what I suggested. Let's say you made the limit $500, okay? Let's say that that would be about $22,000, ballpark, twenty two five. Okay, so the city, you know, they're making the priority decision that we would rather spend the money on other things. You mean to tell me they couldn't come up with twenty two five? Of course they could come up with that. They are just deciding that they don't want to because they would rather spend the money on other things. That may be a valid choice. It's a decision they're making. But if you're a driver in the city of Milwaukee, I mean, just look out. Don't the city could pay it if they wanted to. They are choosing to not make this a priority. Just think about that when you hear that they want to spend one hundred and sixty four million dollars, a portion of which is going to come out of the city budget for a trolley. No repave money to repave alleys. No money to make people whose cars are damaged by potholes whole. But, yeah, we've got that money for the trolley. It's all about priorities. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. We're back. So very glad to have you with us. 
All right. Uh, the announcement, the Kentucky Derby winner, Country House, not going to run in the Preakness. So that means there will be no Triple Crown winner this year, which means that interest in these races, which are the, the crown jewel of horse racing, interest just has completely dropped um, among like the average among the average people who follow horse racing or average sports fans. You know, here's one of the deals. And I, I said this yesterday. I think. I think the stewards at the Kentucky Derby made a dramatically bad decision. I bet on horse races all the time, and the the winner, the horse that should have won, that did in fact win the race but was disqualified, maximum security, clearly the best horse. Clearly the best horse. I thought that there was a little bit of contact, certainly not enough to justify a disqualification. And I would add, if it takes 20 minutes to decide whether there's been enough contact to justify a disqualification, that that tells you that there hasn't been. It is unprecedented to have a 20-minute stewards inquiry. It just doesn't happen. And I think the stewards did a – number one, I think they got it wrong. Number two, I think they did a huge disservice to a horse racing industry, which is – under a lot of fire. They've had situations, Santa Anita, which is the crown jewel track in California, has had a number of horses that died this winter. Lots of people are focusing on, you know, where do we go with the sport? And here you have this controversy involving the Kentucky Derby. And now as a result of this, what you see is there's not going to be any, any there's no possibility for a triple crown winner this year. Just not good in general. The very, very last thing that the uh, Kentucky Derby and that the horse racing industry needed. And once again, I understand reasonable people disagree, but I just don't think there was enough contact to disqualify that horse. And um, I think I think the majority of people probably agree with me. I You just, unless you're clear, you're clear that it affected the outcome of the race, I don't think you take down the winner, and I don't think that is what happened. All right, let us switch gears. You might not know this, and as a matter of fact, some very, very prominent politicians over the years have not known this either. But there is an obscure provision in Wisconsin law which makes it illegal. Actually, it makes it a felony to take a picture of your ballot. State law bars any voter from showing his or her marked ballot to any person or places a mark upon the ballot so it is identifiable as his or her ballot. That's a felony. Now, what has happened in the age of selfies is we feel this need to document everything in our life. People want to take pictures of everything. So you have had, including some prominent politicians, who have taken pictures of their ballot in the polling place as they've been getting ready to submit them. This is technically a felony. Now, I don't know, matter of fact, I don't believe that there's been anybody in Wisconsin charged with, you know, taking one of these ballot selfies. They haven't been charged with a felony, but it is on the books. There currently is legislation that was pending. Matter of fact, there's a hearing going on today which would change this. It would make it legal for you to take a picture of your ballot. Now, interestingly enough, the Wisconsin Clerks Association is testifying against this. They don't want to see a change in the law. They have two principal arguments. First of all, they say if you change the law, it will make it easier for somebody, a third party, to essentially bribe you to vote. I could say, Gru, I tell you what, if you go and you vote for 
candidate A, I will give you $100. But I don't know. I mean, Gru can come back to me and say, well, I voted for candidate A, Jeff. But I'll say, well, can you prove it? No, I can't prove it. But if you could take a ballot selfie, this is the argument, you could come in and say, see, here's my ballot. I was holding it. I voted for candidate A. Give me $100. So the clerks argue, number one, it would make it easier for people, whether it's, again, me or whether it's some nefarious third-party group or a union or whatever, to say, okay, we're going to give you a benefit if you vote for the candidate we told you about, but this is what you have to do. Take the ballot selfie to prove it. That's the first argument. Second argument is if you allow people to be taking pictures like this, they could inadvertently take pictures of other people. For example, Gru's in the polling place. He's posing. He's holding up his ballot, taking his selfie. Um, I could be in the background. Maybe it catches my ballot. Maybe it doesn't. But it's a poll. It's something inside the polling place. So the clerks say this could be violating people's privacy because, again, you could have other people that would be in the picture. Those are the two arguments. Now, it would still be illegal. Election bribery is still illegal. There, there's no question about it. So if under the scenario I laid out, Gru takes the picture of the ballot selfie, brings it to me, and I give him $100, that's still a crime. That, that doesn't change. But the clerks are concerned it would make it easier for people to be inclined to do that if you could now prove how you voted. The flip side is, hey, everybody takes selfies nowadays. It's the First Amendment. You know, if you want to show your ballot, you should be able to do that. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will tell you where I come down on this, but this is one that I'm actually legitimately curious about your response. All right, do you think that you should... People should be able, if they choose, to take the ballot selfies. Should you be able to photograph your ballot in the polling place and then share it with the world on Twitter or Facebook or whatever? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The law currently says no. Should it be changed? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us, Dennis in West Allis. Dennis, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing today? Good. You're a poll worker. Yes, I am. <laughs> I work at one of the polls on the near south side. Okay. And um, I, I'm not in favor of this, but I'll tell you right now, I, I see it happening all the time mm-hmm. anyway, especially with first-time voters, especially when first-time voters are there with their parents. And a lot of times the parents that are clicking the shots, it's not even a selfie. Okay. Here, and, here, pose next to the machine to, with your ballot. Yeah. Yeah, and we try to discourage it, but, you know, sometimes we don't always catch it because we, we get a little busy occasionally. Sure. So. And you've got more important things to do. You know, as a, as, a, <laughs> as, as a practical matter, you've got more important things to do. You're trying well, to get people right. to vote in the first place. Yeah. Tell, exactly. me wh- tell me why you're against this. Yeah, I just, it's supposed to be a secret. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not supposed to be sharing this with the world. Mm-hmm. I just, yeah. 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 I'm sorry. Oh, no, you don't. No, I get it. No, thank you. No, you don't have to apologize. See, I, see, I understand it. I, let, let me be real clear here. I, there, I'm not taking a picture of my ballot. And, and I, I think we live in a world of oversharing. Okay, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't think people need to know everything. Now, I freely admit, if you follow me on Twitter, 
It's at Jeff Wagner 620. I will from time to time tweet elements of my personal life out there. But but I I mean, all right. Yesterday, my dog, four, Sasha turned four. Okay, we had a little we had a little birthday party. So if you follow me on Twitter, there's a picture of me standing there. I'm holding Sasha, and we we gave her a little bit of ice cream with some candles in it. And there's two pictures. There's one of me holding the dog with the candles in the ice cream. There's another one of, of the dog eating the ice cream. And they're, they're two birthday-related tweets. Maybe a week ago, I sent out a personal tweet. I was at the baseball game with my uh, grandson and my nephew. Okay, so occasionally, there, there's a little sharing. I like to see it occasionally. You will not see a dozen tweets from me on a daily basis of everything I've done. Here, here's the sweater I've decided to wear today. Oh, here's the shoes that I've decided to put on. I, I just don't believe in that. And so I would be the last person in the world it would be taking a ballot selfie. So I, I, I don't get it either. I, and I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a good idea to do. But the truth of the matter is, like you were saying, it is done. It's done on a regular basis. Nobody, to my knowledge, has ever been prosecuted, um, for a felony for it. So I guess the question is, given the fact that it is your ballot, um, don't you have a First Amendment right to put that information out there? Now, again, if, if there's somebody that's bribing you and it turns out that this is going to be your way of proving that you voted in a certain case, that continues to be a felony. But, yes, I'm having trouble as a practical matter and as a matter of constitutional law figuring out why somebody, if you it's your ballot, if you want to take a picture of your ballot, why should the government be telling you that you can't do it? Mabel in Oak Creek. Hi, Mabel. You're on WTMJ. Good morning. I only uh, turned the car on a little bit ago, so I missed the first part of sure. you know people calling in. But yes, I've been a poll worker off and on in Milwaukee County for about 25 years. And in my opinion, between the selfies and the you know cell phones of audio and visual recording, it does get to be a little much, especially when you're trying to protect the other voters in the area. Maybe they don't want people to be in, they don't want to be included in people's pictures even though they're only the background part of it right. okay so let me um, let me would that be your principal objection because i think that's fair you it, it's you it's not so much would your objection be not that they're necessarily taking a picture of their ballot but they're taking a picture of them holding their ballot and there's you or me in the background then i haven't consented to it would that cor- be the concern correct okay um i think that's fair um let's if the law were modified to say you can take a picture of your own ballot, but you can't show anything else or any other person invading their right of privacy, might you feel differently about this? Yes. Okay. I think, and I think that's fair. No, th- thanks for calling. I I think that that is a fair comment, and I guess. I, I, if I were to put an asterisk up there, too, I mean, I understand that. See, I, and I think that's where you get the balancing act. I think, and again, I'm not one of these people that believes that you <laughs> that you have to document every particular aspect of your life. Here, I'm going to the vending machine. These are my choices. I, I don't think you have to document that. But I do think, I guess, as a practical matter, I mean, if you have, if if you have the right to walk out of that polling place and say, I voted for Tony Evers, or I voted for Donald Trump, or I voted for Hillary Clinton. And you have that right to do it. We're not telling you, I mean, the law doesn't say you can't tell people how you voted. It doesn't make any sense to me that we would say you can't also, if you want, take a photograph of your ballot 
and show the world that you did in fact vote that way. I, I think you should have the right to do it. Would I do it? No. Is it a good idea to do it? Well, I, I don't know. You can argue about that. I do think Mabel makes an interesting point, though, and I'm glad she called in. There is a privacy right to other people. And just because I'm in the polling place, when you decide you want to take your selfie, doesn't mean that I've consented to be, you know, on your Facebook page or etc. It's not like I'm on a public street corner. I'm in the polling place. So I think that's a fair thing. Do I think that they should change the law saying it, it shouldn't be a, a felony? Yes, I do. Do I think you could say that, you know, any selfies, you know, have to not include other people without their express permission, I think that that's a reasonable accommodation. Here's the other thing, and I, I make this argument all the time. When, when you have a, a law that's on the books that's not that's not enforced, and it's like our first caller, the first poll worker was talking about Dennis. Now, Dennis is saying, look, this happens a lot, especially happens with younger people. Sometimes the parents are taking the photos. You know, what, what are you going to do? If you're the poll worker, are you going to call the police and refer somebody for an arrest for this? No, you're not going to do that. So it's a law that, that, that it's not going to be enforced anyway. So given that it's not going to be enforced, why do we have this on the books? This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ that it's dumb and it's incorrect because you can come up with all sorts of examples where you have had some black aldermen or women who voted on one issue and some black aldermen or women aldermen or women who voted on another issue i mean it, it's not like there's this monolithic block I, and and so if he's suggesting that it's it's just the, it's not only a dumb thing to say it's just an incorrect thing to say now on the flip side if he is suggesting that race plays a, a factor, you know, in the decisions and some of the decisions that are being made, well, I'm not sure that that's that controversial either. I mean, you know, if he's saying that decisions are based on race, let, let's back this up. It is no secret that race is a huge issue in, in Milwaukee. It is no secret that we are one, Milwaukee is one of the most segregated cities. You know, you constantly hear stories about, you know, the, the disproportionate number of African-Americans who are involved either as perpetrators or as victims of crime. You hear a lot about the achievement gap in schools between minority students and non-minority students. We talk a lot about their disparities, the racial disparities in hiring and employment and earnings. I mean, it's I mean, race is like it or not. I mean, it is an issue and it's an issue that ends up getting addressed in in voting. Let me give you an example of that that just happened today. When we first moved to Milwaukee, my parents moved here when I was like nine or ten years old, 1967. The, the prominent store, there was a Sears store on 21st and North. And this is back in the day in the 60s. Sears was where America shopped. Sears was a, was a big thing. I understand not so much anymore, but Sears was the big thing. And you had a Sears store at Bayshore and you had a Sears store at Brookfield Square and you had a Sears store, you know, at some of these other places. But the, the North Avenue Sears store, that was the granddaddy of them all, and it's where people went if you wanted to see the full line of stuff at, at Sears. All right, that area fell into decline. Sears left. It's been closed for a long, long time. And that whole area of North Avenue there is an economically distressed area. It's near downtown, but it's got no spillover at all from some of the economic advancements that you've had you know, in the downtown area. So here's the idea. There's a developer 
that wants to come in and he wants to build a hotel in that area, in the location where that old Sears store was on 21st and North. Now, in order to make this work, there's all sorts of problems with financing, but he wants to put in a boutique hotel and like a convention center. In order to make this work, he needs a $4 million grant from, from the city. I mean, he needs a loan. I mean, it's a city It's a city loan, and the idea is this is going to be paid back through one of these tax incremental financing districts. Here's the problem. The estimates are that after you build the property, let's say you get the loan, you build this, their estimates are that the value of the property is only going to be $3.6 million. All right, now let, let, let's back up a step here. Let's say you are building a house. And you go to your bank and you say, hi, Mr. Banker, I'd like a $400,000 loan because I want to build a house. And they say, okay, all right, how how much, after you build this house, how much is the house and the land going to be worth? And you say, $360,000. And they say, wait a second, <laughs> You're, you, you want us to loan you $400,000, but it's only going to be worth $360,000. Nobody in their right mind is going to do that deal. I mean, it's it's you're loaning somebody more money than the thing is going to be worth. Well, today, by a vote of 12 to 3, the Milwaukee Common Council did just that. They went ahead. They approved the loan. They're going to loan $4 million for property that at the end of the day is only worth $3.6 million. And there's all sorts of other questions about this, um, whether... You know, the loan is, is ever, does it ever have any realistic chance to be repaid? I would be extremely skeptical of this. And there's some people in the city that are raising these questions as well. They're saying, look, this is incredibly risky. And if the developer can't pull this off, the city is going to end up owning this property. And that's not really what we want. But the Common Council went ahead and did it. Why did the Common Council do it? Well, it's because of race. It's because this is an economically underdeveloped area. They are trying, they are trying to help out the constituents in this area. They are hoping, and they understand that it's a risk, they understand that it's bad business, but this is a predominantly minority area. They are trying to help it out. And so they're willing to take a chance with taxpayer dollars because you know, they are concerned with the economic disparities that exist between white people and black people in this city, in this region. So they're taking a risk. And it's a decision that I think it's fair to say is based partially on race. And I candidly don't know that there's anything wrong with this. Is it a risky decision? Yeah, it is. But they're trying to get economic development into that area. So it's based on race. But in this particular case, I think, you know, race to an extent you know, might be a legitimate sort of concern. Our number, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, I don't know what Witkowski meant by what he said, because, again, I think it's kind of difficult to try to parse out, you know, what he's talking about. But the reality is we have a very segregated community around here, and I have no doubt that some of the decisions are made are a factor of race. My guess is if Terry Witkowski had tried to do this deal and get something similar for his district, it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. But, you know, you have an economically depressed area, you have a highly segregated area. The leader, the people that be are trying to get dough into that area. So, yeah, it's a factor of race, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. 
414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Vincent on the northwest side. Hi, Vincent. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. What do you think? Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's much about race, but I, I think it's just trying to get development in an economically economically depressed area, even if they did it on the south side or somewhere like that, on the near south side, which is which is basically going through the same problems that the near north side is, is that uh, we, they're trying to spur some development. Now, my issue is that if it's a bad deal, it's a bad deal. Well, that's a whole other story, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know that, I mean, that, that's a whole other story, and, and candidly, that doesn't make any sense to me. But, I mean, yeah. at the same time, Vincent, we... We talk a lot in this community, appropriately so, about the, the racial disparities that exist and, you know, all those different things, achievement gap in schools and economic development and all. And, and I guess, I, I don't know, I guess I just don't think it's unreasonable if, if some people are considering race when they're making decisions. We, we've got to get development in an economically underdeveloped area that, uh, especially if it's an area where it, it affects a lot of uh, people of color. or you know, I, I guess I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, I, no, I understand what they're doing. They're doing just because the area is predominantly, predominantly a, a place of color. Right. The fact is they, 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 they voted unanimously downtown to, to put right. development downtown for to go north. Right. You know, they've even, you know, did bad deals when they spent $2 million giving it to Boston. I'm so glad you remember. See, Vincent, you, you've got a, you've got a mind like a steel trap. I was thinking about that same thing, too. That that Boston store deal just was terrible all was along. Terrible. Yeah. And so, and so that's my point is, is that, that, yes, you need to try to get some development in, 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 in the near north side and also in the near south side in order for it to keep it viable. So, so, so I, I think that's what they're trying to do. But I'm saying if you're going to, if, if, if you're going to buy a property that's not worth what, right. what, what it is on paper, it's absolutely bad for the taxpayers. And it, that's my problem with No, it. no, I think so. And I, I mean, I, and I think that's, that's a, that is a fair, that is a fair criticism of this particular deal, which doesn't make any sense to me at all, other than it's the fact that they are trying, I think, to try to they're, – they're trying to do anything, even make risky loans – in an effort to spur development in areas that, that badly need it. I mean, Russell Stamper, who's the alderman for there, says we need to build the central city and we need to provide jobs. And I, I get it. That's what they're, that's what they're trying to do. And it's not just the economic development. It is the fact that, you know, we're talking about economic development in areas where there are a disproportionate number of people of color. And my point is, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, is, is race a factor as long with development? Yeah. Now, I don't know what, what Kowski meant by what he said. Mark in New Berlin. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, exactly what you said, what you said Jeff. We don't know what he meant. So these aldermen and supervisors they got to come out and tell us what they mean when they say this right this it was a po- it was a poorly written piece <laughs> right yeah yeah i mean when they say the stupid things you better say what you meant like i seen alderman Zelensky, he's the, he's denying a project in his ward by kk because he said it doesn't fit the neighborhood but then he's building a house that doesn't fit the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, it, right that I mean, you, what do these guys mean what are we go, what are we going by well, right smart for them to waste four million dollars of our tax well, right, exactly. No, thanks. See, and that, that's it. And that's why I say, I mean, I, if, if Witkowski is saying, you know, we've got 
we've got elected officials who uh you know who are uh, you know persons of color and they are voting together as a block against the interest of the city well number one I don't, that's just not true i mean you, you can come up with all the, i don't get the idea that there's this monolithic block in on the milwaukee common council that you know all the you know uh, members of the minority groups are, are voting in one particular way i don't think that's true you could find all sorts of examples otherwise if you want to say on the other hand that hey we're trying to deal with segregation we're trying to deal with these economic disparities and so you know we, we are you know, we're willing to take risks or make riskier investments to try to hope that we can turn around some neighborhood that's close to downtown that's primar- primarily, you know, populated by members of a minority groups. So we're willing to be risky. I, I don't I, I understand. And if that's what he means by we're voting based on race. Well, OK, there, there's probably an element to that. I guess I just don't know what he, he's talking about here. But I do think that, you know, you there's unquestionably you have an issue with segregation in this community and, and you have to figure out ways to confront it. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, we had all these people get together a couple of weeks ago and say we want to declare racism to be a public health you know hazard. OK, I, I, I get it. So if this is, you know, we're going to make certain votes because we want to try to get some development in these underdeveloped areas. Oh, OK, that, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that if you want to say people are voting simply because of the color of their skin i just that's a dumb thing to say it's also not true so that makes it even more dumb stick around back for more here's wtmj's jeff wagner So very glad to have you with us i think this court ruling is a miscarriage of justice but I'm curious as to how you react to it. Here, here is, here's the deal. There is a very, very famous French expressionist, a painter, died in 1903. His name is Camille Pizarro. All right, in 1897, he he painted again. It's one of these impressionistic paintings. Did it in 1897. It's called the Effect of Rain. That's how you pronounce it in in English. So he did it in 1897. Um, in 1897, after he did it, the painting was purchased by a German industrialist um, who happened to be Jewish. Okay, So it was owned by this particular family since 1897. By the way, the painting is worth $40 million now, 40 million bucks. So, okay, so the German industrialist, who happens to be Jewish, purchases it in 1897. It's in their family until 1939. What happens in 1939, and keep in mind, 1939 is not a great time to be Jewish in Nazi Germany. What happens in 1939 is the Nazis come to the German industrialist's family and they say, all right, here is here is the deal. You've got two choices. One is concentration camp. Two is we will allow you to leave the country, but you have to leave everything behind. You you have we're taking everything. We're taking your house. We're taking all your possessions, including th- this particular painting. And if if you know you leave, we'll let you leave. But if you don't, okay, you stay at your own risk. So the family leaves. So, in other words, this this painting, along with all the other property that the pa- family have, is, I mean, it, it's looted. It's effectively stolen by, Nash, by Nazi Germany. All right? So, war comes, 
war goes. Painting disappears, kind of gets lost in the ether. Nobody knows what happens to this painting. And long story short, um, the painting surfaces about 1961, and what you have is that you have, you know, somebody who ends up uh, painting resurfaces uh, with an art dealer in, Be- in Beverly Hills who buys it in 1951, buys this painting because it has suddenly surfaced. In 1976, the art dealer, he sells it to somebody else. That person buys it in 76, and then ultimately, 20 years later, the person sells it to this museum in Spain. So you've got the, the idea, painting has disappeared. Well, the family that this was originally taken from had lost track of this particular painting until somewhere um, somewhere in the 90s, they find out, hey, this is that painting that the Nazis stole from our family in 1939. And now it, it's hanging on the wall in a museum in Spain. So the family says, wait a minute, this is, this is our, this is our painting. This belongs to us. It was stolen from us by the Nazis during World War II. We want it back. The museum in Spain says, well, sorry, but, you know, we, we bought it from this guy in 1976. You know, we, we, we bought it from this guy who bought it in 1976. We didn't investigate the background. We didn't ask him where he got it. We didn't know that it was stolen from your family. We got it in good faith. You cannot have it back. All right. The matter goes to court. And uh, late last week, a federal judge says, well, I've got some moral issues with this. But at the end of the day, I'm going to allow the museum to keep the painting. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is fundamentally wrong that the museum is making the decision to keep this painting. It's kind of, to me, like... Somebody comes into my house, steals my big screen TV set, and then the guy that stole it sells it out of the back of a truck in an alley to somebody later on, and then I find out that that's my TV set. I think I should be entitled to get my TV set back, and if the person that ended up buying it has a claim, they should go after the guy that stole it. This is, I think, a variation of that. I think it adds insult to injury to say to this family who for who this painting was looted back in 1939, the painting was taken from them. They were never compensated for this. I mean, I think to say that they shouldn't be able to get it returned to them or at least have fair market value paid to them, I think is wrong. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Should the museum be able to benefit from essentially looted Nazi artwork. We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is going to be an interesting discussion. Greg in Watertown. Hi, Greg. You're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. What do you think? Should the museum be able to keep this painting that was stolen from somebody by the Nazis in 1939? Um, I'm not a lawyer, and I know you used to be. <laughs> well, um, I still am, actually. I just don't practice law, but yeah. <laughs> okay, but accepting stolen merchandise is pretty much illegal, isn't it? 
Well, you have to know that it's stolen. The museum says we didn't know it was stolen. Um, at the same time, I don't think the museum did a lot to check out the, the bona fides of this, if you know what I mean, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think they should either be given it back or, like you said, be compensated for the loss. Right, because... I, mean, I think it's only fair... Right, because they're—I mean—the family that originally owned it—they're—they're they're the victims. I mean, you know that this—this is this is stuff that was looted, stolen by the Nazis, and now you're telling them that the family can't have this back. It just strikes me as being fundamentally wrong. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, no, thanks, Nikolai. You know, and the—I um, guess here's the—I mean, here's the thing: the uh, receiving stolen property is, is illegal. There is this doctrine in the law, without getting too deep in the weeds, called conversion. And and what that means is you you don't get title to stolen property, even if you didn't know it was stolen. Uh, let's go back to let, let's say let's say that I steal Gru's car and then I turn around and I sell it to you. All right. You don't know the car is stolen. All right. You, you don't know the car is stolen and you've paid me for it. Well, OK, you if it turns out it is stolen. Under the law, that car has to go back to Gru because it's it's his car. You know, I if I am the thief, I never had ownership. I never had title to convey it to you in the first place. So what's your remedy? You say, hey, wait a second. I didn't know that I was buying stolen property. Well, what you have to do is you have to go and you have to sue the thief. Hey, give me my money back. Now, that you might say that's not a fair burden to put on an innocent purchaser, but, I mean, somebody's got to bear the risk. Is it more fair to say to the owner whose property was stolen that you're out of luck? Um, and that's, it seems to me, what we're doing here to this family who went through the Holocaust. You know, they're saying you're out of luck. Yeah, this was stolen by the Nazis, but sorry, because you can't prove the museum knew it was stolen. Um, what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to say no harm, no foul. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Poor people that own the original painting are getting ripped off twice. You know, first by the Nazis, and now them by the museum. Uh, yeah. They should get the painting back, or they should get restitution for the uh, fair value market of the painting now from the museum, and the museum yeah. should go after whoever they got it from. Right, e- e- exactly. Now, I see. I think again, again, I, I, nobody argues that the museum knew it was buying stolen property, but it is pretty clear that the museum wasn't asking a lot of questions, just like the other owners weren't asking a lot of questions. I mean, you you knew who the original owner of this was. You knew it was this German Jewish industrialist. You knew everybody pretty much knew that the painting disappeared in the 1930s. And then suddenly it mysteriously surfaces, you know, 12 years later. I mean, there's a lot of people that have owned this in between. And I think all of them were kind of like looking the other way. Well, you know, we don't really care who originally owned this. Here, we're going to sell it, then we're going to resell it, and they're going to resell it. Again, it seems to me that I just go back to this basic tenet that if it was stolen from somebody in the first place, once you find it, it should be returned to them. 414-799-1620. Dave in Whitefish Bay. Hi, Dave. Hey, good afternoon. What do you think? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. I, I guess I disagree. Um, to me, the the family's real beef is with the uh, the Nazis, and maybe they should be required to uh, sue the you know, German government or somebody first. And if they can't recover at that point, maybe they then go back after the art gallery who 
Um, you know, you're, you're kind of guessing they failed to ask questions, but you don't really know that. Mm-hmm. And it's, to me, it seems like the art gallery is really left uh, with the bag on something they didn't do wrong. Okay, well, let me let me ask you. Let, let me use the car example. Let's say that I steal your car. All right, car car is gone. I take your car and I sell it to my producer. I, you know, that ultimately we find out. We, you know, he's driving around and you see it one day and say, "Hey, that's that's my car." Okay, don't you want to get your car back? Don't you think you should be entitled to get your car back? I, I do, but perhaps I should. And I know this isn't the law. I heard what you said, but perhaps I should go after you first. You're the bad guy, mm-hmm. unless your producer knew. Yeah, and and again, the law would be no. Thanks for calling. I mean, the law would be that it, it's still it would be your car because I never had title to to transfer it to my producer. I guess that see, and that's it. In in my example, that's your car, you know, and you shouldn't be screwed over because somebody stole your car from you. I mean, you should be entitled to get your car back. And when, I'm trying to be simplistic here. We're leaving out issues of insurance and things like that. But you should be entitled to get your car back. I guess I just, this this result, you know, this result bothers me because I just think it's so fundamentally unfair. Now, I understand you can argue that the museum, the, the museum didn't know and whether they did their due diligence or not, but it still doesn't change the fact that this originally was taken, it was stolen by the Nazis from this German Jewish industrialist family in 1939, and all throughout the years, it's really belonged to them. Let's talk to John in Brookfield. Hi, John. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. What do you think? Well, I have, I have a large collection of art, uh, that some of which, uh, which I've gotten from my parents and some of which I purchased on my own. Uh, my real feeling is that this is no new lesson for the museum. They probably have a very large insurance policy for all kinds of things, and that, honestly, it should be returned, and they should take it up with their insurance company. I mean, this is a mm-hmm. not something that uh, is a, is a first time around the block with them. I mean, well, if, if, if they had found that this had originally been in a very famous museum, there would be a lot of litigation, and, and maybe there will be. Uh, but mm-hmm. I think it's fairly cut and dried, and that's what you have insurance for. Well, also... And again, I, I, I'm not a collector of artwork. I'm the guy that still likes you know, the, the, the black light things with the dogs playing cards and stuff like that. But I mean, to your point, I would imagine this does come up all sorts of times. And I'm thinking yeah. if I'm in a, if I'm in a museum of art in Madrid, Spain, which is where this is, and somebody comes to me and wants to sell me a collection of paintings, at the very least, I'm going to be doing some due diligence and some research trying to find out, you know, what the history of these things are, because the history is pretty much well documented. And it would seem to me if you do that, there would be all sorts of red flags about this stuff that it would have probably gone off. How did this get from the original owners, you know, the Jewish industrialists? Well, what happened between 19? Where did what happened to this painting? And how did it suddenly surface in New York in 1951? There seems to me there'd be all sorts of red flags about that. You know, and it could be very muddy. And it probably is being that it was originally stolen. But I would bet that there is some guidelines that the museums are supposed to follow to to cover themselves on this. Maybe, right. maybe the insurance company is saying, hey, uh, uh, we're not going to cover this. And they're suddenly uh, changing their tack. I don't know. Yeah, but could be. No, you, but think you, think, you think the family, the original owners deserve to have it back. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thanks. I, I do, too. Because I guess at the, at the end of the day, and 
I, I understand you've got the different laws and the things like that. At the end of the day, I think the law should all be all about what's the right thing that should happen. You know, what what it, it, what is the fair thing? What is the right thing that should happen? And I understand that sometimes that that's not always the way things work out. But in this particular case, it seems to me pretty clear that the right thing should be that if a piece of property is stolen, it goes back to the people that owned it in in the first place because they're the original victims. And to make the point that one of our first callers made, by by not giving them the painting back, you're you're victimizing the victims. In any event, federal judge said, nope, the museum gets to keep it. I don't know if there's going to be an appeal. I would kind of hope so. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, in the next hour of the program, um, a couple is in trouble for choosing not to have their child receive treatment. Bayshore Shopping Center wants a whole bunch of money, and a community is getting ready to decide whether not to decriminalize marijuana, but magic mushrooms stick around. It's going to be an interesting set of conversations, I promise. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, I have a text here. Are they reading the right weather forecast? It, it's May. It's not March. You know? <laughs> that scared me for a second. I was like, ooh, did I put in the right one? <laughs> no, no. It just, it I get been, it. No, 42 right? degrees. Um, and just, at, and you are, as we were talking about earlier, you've been, Wisconsin's Afternoon News has been originating from by, outside Pfizer Forum, the yes. Deer District, yes. um, before the, the Bucks games. Mm-hmm. And there'll be and- another one tomorrow night. And the weather has been... Pretty much absolutely crummy you every know, time you guys have been down every there. Every time we're down there. And, you know, the away games seem to be okay. But when, right. you know, when the Bucks play at home, we are in the tailgater outside. And, you know, it's, it's cold in there at first, the tailgater. Right. And, um, yeah, it's cold outside, too. Last time we saw lots of people with umbrellas and umbrellas going backwards because it's windy. And, you know, well, and tomorrow, tomorrow they're predicting, what, an inch to two inches yeah, of rain between yeah. tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday. I mean, it's, it's 41 degrees Just outside. Just catch it's, a break. No, it was. I, I went out to take... Uh, the dog out for a walk this morning and i'm like oh my goodness gracious this is at six o'clock in the morning and i'm thinking wow what happened to spring no 41 degrees i'm hoping that it changes quickly um last weekend we had a really great weekend so uh yeah that was nice but you will regardless um good weather bad weather you and john mccure and greg matzik you guys are going to be all down at the uh pfizer forum tomorrow Tomorrow that's -hmm. outstanding tonight i'm going to the ball game again Going to run the risk of, I told the story yesterday about left field Lou, the angry usher. And it's, it's, it's I, I had a really bad experience with an, with an usher going into the game on Friday night. And it's, it's so unusual because everybody's nice. It, it, Definitely. Everybody's nice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I go there all the time. I got a partial season ticket thing and everybody's nice. And I ran into the one guy who, oh. who wasn't. So we'll, we'll, we'll see when we, we go back tonight. But thank goodness that there is a roof because you look at the great attendance that the Brewers have had. And, and number one, it's because it's a fun baseball team and they're playing winning baseball and a lot of people think they've got a chance to make the playoffs again and go to the world series but it's also you've got that you've got the dome because Mm -hmm. truthfully even though i have tickets if it was 41 degrees and cold i wouldn't be sitting out there if it wasn't for For the the brewers anytime's a good time weather-wise to go see a game because it's all set yeah now the interesting thing grew i know you're a baseball fan i i do find this interesting the psychology of the game the the brewers their, their starter is this guy named freddie peralta who apparently has just a great arm, but 
can't get out of the first inning. I mean, he, he he's and it, this goes back to last year. He just gets torched in the first inning, you know. And if you can get him through the first inning, he, he's okay. But last time out, he gave up four runs in the first inning and then three in the second inning. And oh no, he's hitting his stride. Well, by that time, you're a touchdown behind. The game is probably pretty much over. And it, it's this pattern that the guy can't start games. So what they're apparently going to do today is they're going to bring a bring a um a reliever in to start the game you know and have the reliever go an inning or two innings or whatever and then they're going to pitch freddie peralta so they must have decided some of this is psychological or something i don't know i'm going to be at the game tonight it's going to be interesting to interesting to watch it's like well the guy's our starter but you know he's no good in the first or second inning so we'll just bring him in in the third inning hey if it works it works okay here is the story i've been waiting all day to discuss this with you let me say at the outset that we have talked about similar things over the years, and I'm really not inconsistent on this. In this particular case, I think the parents are getting a raw deal. Here's the story about this, and, and maybe you've seen this on the national news. It's been a breaking story. There's a little boy. in He's four years old, three years old, actually, lives in Tampa, Florida. And what happened is the parents uh, start to notice that they, they think the child's well, like lethargic and, and didn't didn't seem to be himself. He was kind of like sluggish. So in early April, they they take him into an emergency room and they say, can you take a check? The first doc- hospital can't find anything wrong. They take him to another emergency room. They can't find anything wrong. Finally, they find a doctor. And what they do is they diagnose that this child has what the doctors say is acute lymphoblastic leukemia, a form of cancer. Horrible. Three-year-old kid. Horrible. It has this. All right. So the treatment for this, for this cancer, the accepted medical treatment is chemotherapy for about two and a half years. The side effects of the chemotherapy are awful, um, but they say that after two and a half years, if you go through this chemotherapy, that the cure rate is about 90%. But it's it's a long slog. So what the parents do is they originally say, okay, you know, we're, we'll, we'll go through the chemotherapy treatments at the hospital. And then, so they, they take the kid in. The kid is in the hospital for about 10 days, and the parents start to become concerned with the care that the kid is getting. They say that they, they think the governing body was disorganized. The doctors were not professional to us. Um, we had trouble getting answers from the doctors and the nurses. Um, they, they didn't like the fact that we objected to our kid getting chocolate milk and pudding or ice cream. You know, we care what he, what he wants. And the father says, hey, I contacted the hospital many times and um, said, look, I'm, I'm not happy with the, the treatment the kid is getting. So after that, the parents decide, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to bring him back for chemotherapy anymore, at which point in time the family leaves Florida. They take the child, and they go to Ohio to try to find a doctor because what they're looking for is perhaps alternative treatments, you know, the alternative medicine treatments. Well, the kid has been in the hospital. Now, follow me on this. The social workers and the doctors say, well, bottom line is these alternative treatments, this is just 
it's 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 witch doctor type of stuff. You know, these alternative treatments, you know, will do nothing. Natural remedies will do nothing. And the child needs to have this two and a half years of chemotherapy based on these representations by the doctors. Authorities in Florida get an arrest warrant for the parents charging them with child neglect for pulling the kid out and getting a second opinion and maybe exploring natural remedies. And the bottom line is the parents were arrested either earlier this week or late last week in Kentucky with the kid as they were heading up to Ohio. And now the order has been the child has been taken from them while there's a determination to just figure out if they are fit parents or not, all because they were trying to explore alternative remedies to two and a half years of chemotherapy. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is another one where I'll tell you where I come down with in just a minute. But all right, is this child neglect? Should the parents lose custody of the child? Because they're making the decision that before they commit to two and a half years of a brutal chemotherapy regimen that the doctors say has a 90% chance of effectiveness, but it's going to have miserable side effects, that they want to explore alternate remedies. Should the parents have a right to do that? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'll tell you where I come down on this, and we will discuss in just a minute. But what do you think? They're just saying, hey, we're not convinced right now that chemotherapy is the way to go. We want to think about other options. Does that make the parents unfit? Should they have the right to decide what happens to their kid? We decide. We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. 42 degrees outside. All right, here's the deal. I think I think this family, the mom and dad, at this point in time are getting a raw deal. I don't think wanting to explore alternatives before committing your three-year-old child to a two-and-a-half-year regimen of, regimen of chemotherapy for this particular cancer, I don't think that makes them bad parents, and I certainly don't think it makes them people for whom um, their, their parental rights should be terminated. Now, maybe this is influenced by my personal, you know, dealings with, with cancer, which is awful. But, you know, chemotherapy is a very, very, under deciding to undertake chemotherapy is a very, very personal and a very, very intense situation. There are, for some people, they're able to tolerate it well. For other people, you know, the side effects are, are brutal. And it's a decision which I think you have to make with a degree of consideration. All right, so in this particular case, the parents, it's not like they're rejecting medical treatment. They take their three-year-old in. They start the chemotherapy things. They start to become concerned with issues. So they decide to explore alternatives. Now, it may very well be that, you know, you explore some of these alternatives, and it turns out that it's not working. And that, you know, that they are not going to succeed at that point in time. Maybe you go back to square one. But I guess this idea that, you know, the, the doctors, the doctors say that, you know, that this is the only course of option that's available to you. And if you don't do it, 
well, okay, that automatically means that you're negligent parents. I, I guess I don't buy into that. Now, I have, there's been other cases, you know, situations where you have the child that's in the diabetic coma and the parents decide that they're not going to do anything and they completely turn their back on medical treatment. I think that that's a different sort of situation. This is still in the early stages. The child was just diagnosed in April. I think it's too soon to declare the parents to be negligent. 414-799-1620. Paul in East Troy. Hi, Paul. Hi. What do you think? Morning, Jeff. Well, I guess my point, Jeff, would be uh, right up until the point that child is born, they have the right to kill it. But once once the child's here, they can't search for alternative treatments for uh, mm-hmm. two and a half years of chemo. That seems like a disconnect to me. Well, I guess the question would be who gets it? Who get? Let's say that there are doctors out there that think that these alternative remedies might work. Now, I understand the guy at Johns Hopkins in Tampa says says no, and 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 maybe he or she is is right. But do, do the parents give up all their parental rights when you know the hospital says, "Well, this is the course of treatment that we think your kid should have"? Do the parents have no rights? Uh, I believe they do have the right. I believe. Uh, I mean, if it was a different situation where it was a dire situation, mm-hmm. uh, the treatment was required immediately. It might be a different story. But uh, we're talking two and a half years of chemo. Uh, in downstate, I'd be looking around to make sure that's that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I think I guess. Available. Yeah, I got it. okay, Paul. I, I think we're we're saying the same thing. That I, I I misunderstood what you said originally. Yeah. And look, and I I I don't think in a life-threatening situation that you can just flat out say I- I'm not going to get medical treatment for my my child and that you know the child's in a diabetic coma and if you take them into the hospital they, they can you know with with simple procedures they can you know bring the child back and save the child's life I, I don't think you can ignore that but when you're dealing with uh, again th- this, this dreaded this this horrible disease and no nobody should have it much less a three-year-old I don't think it's unreasonable to give the parents some leeway to try to decide, okay, this is how we want to proceed. And, and yeah, we want to get a second opinion. And, and maybe that second opinion's not going to, you know, square with the opinion of the guy in Tampa, but that doesn't mean you should be issuing an arrest warrant for us. If, to your point, Paul, and I agree, if we were later down the road, if this is a year from now and they haven't sought treatment and the child continues to not progress, you know, and my guess is, candidly, at some point in time, the parents might come around to the idea of chemotherapy anyhow. It's just I'm a little bit concerned with allowing doctors to say, okay, we're going to be able to make all the decisions and we're, if there's one prescribed course of treatment and you don't follow it, you are automatically an unfit parent and a criminal. That bothers me, and I don't think that's right either. This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. Voters in Denver are, in the very near future, going to be deciding whether they will become the first city in the nation to effectively decriminalize a recreational drug other than marijuana. Now, that's the ongoing debate now, and we're playing it out in Wisconsin, is, you know, should should we have marijuana legalized? People make their choices, they smoke it, it's not that harmful, etc., etc. All right, here is what Denver voters will be considering. Decriminalizing hallucinogenic mushrooms. 
the ballot measure um, would essentially say that possession, use, or cultivation of mushrooms that contain psilocybin, which is a naturally occurring psychedelic compound, by Okay, so possession, use, or cultivation of the hallucinogenic mushrooms by people age 21 or older would effectively, um, there would be no penalties for this. And the, the way the story that I'm looking at the New York Times says, adoption of the measure would, again, just like we came around on marijuana, or at least some communities have, it would signal acceptance of this mind-altering drug which has been outlawed nationally for nearly 50 years. Now, why would you want to make this legal? Well, the idea is that there's recent research that says that, uh, well, some of these mushrooms could, in fact, have beneficial medical uses. So the idea is because of the tremendous medical potential, there's no reason why individuals should be criminalized for using something that grows naturally. All right. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I also, I want to expand this conversation because we've been talking about marijuana, and I understand any time we talk about this, I would say probably, I don't know, 60 to 70% of the calls that we get are people who say, all right, you know, yes, we believe that marijuana should be legalized, the recreational, et cetera, you legalize it, you tax it. Okay. This is now the the next step, and it raises the larger question. Should we continue to outlaw drugs? Now, Denver is saying let's decriminalize the hallucinogenic mushrooms. They grow naturally. I guess my question would be, well, if we're going to go down this route, does it make any sense to continue to criminalize any drugs? I mean, what? what and I'm, I'm being serious about this. I mean, if, if individuals want to make that choice, should you be able to, uh, again, possess and use, in this case, it's hallucinogenic mushrooms. But, you know, what about the other drugs as well that we describe as harder drugs? I mean, if, if somebody wants to do cocaine and you can afford it, should you let them? If somebody wants to do heroin, should we let them? 414-799-1620. And, again, mushrooms, hey, they grow naturally. You know, why, why shouldn't people be able to do these if they want them? Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. I hope Wisconsin doesn't do this for two reasons. One is that there are, um, the psilocybin can lead to violent behavior. And a good example is Tony Robinson, who was killed by a police officer in self-defense a few years ago, was on psilocybin. Mm-hmm. And then the other the other reason is that I'm concerned that there'll be a slippery slope. Oh, yeah. Then it'll be acid and then work well, yeah. the bottle. And then things will just get out of control. Well, I guess, but that would be my question. What, why? Sh- um, let, let's talk about it in theory. I mean, if, if you're an adult, you're 21 years old and, you know, you make your own choices and you decide that you want to, you want to take mushrooms or you want to use methamphetamine, should you not be able to do that if you make that decision? Well, yeah, but you can also affect someone who, who has made the decision to not do it. You can attack, you could attack sure. someone, you could hurt someone in a car wreck. Sure. You know, there's, there, you could give it to someone's daughter and she could have a bad trip. There's just sure. a lot of things that are, that are too risky. Got it. Okay. Thanks for the call. Now, I, th- that's what I think is so interesting about this conversation is 
and I agree with you, Jeff, the whole issue, it comes back to the whole idea of slippery slope. Now, I, I am not equating marijuana with heroin or cocaine. I'm, I'm, I'm not, or, or methamphetamine. But at the same time, if the argument is, well, you've got people who want to do this, they're going to do this, this anyways, you know, wouldn't it make more sense to legalize it and tax it? I mean, we're already moving in certain directions like that where we have, I mean, you've got the needle exchange. You've got the needle drop boxes in Starbucks bathrooms, for goodness sakes. 414-799-1620. Karen in Milwaukee. Karen, you're on WTMJ. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Um, I think it's a horrible idea. I know a lot of people are equating this to alcohol consumption, but I think we are um, selfishly ignoring a huge, huge, huge demographic, which is our children. Um, there has to have been some research, medical research at some point or another that would display evidence that this is harmful to, uh, you know, adolescent children that are still developing. Um, this is not something that's just going to impact that individual. You know, what mm-hmm. our teachers, and I'm not a teacher, right. but what our teachers going to do when little Sally and Tommy are coming to school high as a kite yeah. because they're in an altered state because mommy and daddy are, are legal to um, right. You know, engage in that activity. I right. Or alternatively, really Karen, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I'm not I, I'm I'm worried enough driving home on the roadways. I'm not sure I want to be driving on the roadways if we've if we accept the premise that legalization leads to more use. I don't know about you, but I don't necessarily want to be driving around with people that are popping psycho, you know, <laughs> psychedelic mushrooms. Absolutely. I mean, no, idea. you know, thanks. I mean, I, I look, I, I agree, but I bring this up because this is a reference. They're going to be voting. Voting on this in Denver as to whether or not to legalize the the psychedelic mushrooms, the magic mushrooms, and the argument is, hey, it's naturally occurring. You can grow it. You know what's the problem? Um, Andy in Waukesha sends me a text that Jeff, opium is a naturally occurring plant. Should be I be able to grow opium in my backyard? Yeah, these are illegal for a reason, and people are naive to the effects of all this stuff. Um, well, yeah, that's that's true. I mean, if if the argument is it's a plant, it's a naturally occurring product. I mean, the psychedelic mushrooms are no different than the opium. Should you know, do we want to have, you know, opium plants in every backyard in southeastern Wisconsin? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, let's see, let's go to Dave downtown. Hi, Dave. Hi. I've got a friend in law enforcement, and I just kind of have a different twist on it. And honestly, maybe we should look at decriminalization of it and making it available to people in a controlled setting. And I'm a conservative, but now what you're seeing is these drug cartels are introducing fentanyl and heroin at much lower cost because they've lost out on marijuana revenue. These drug cartels aren't simply going to go, you know what, we're down 15%. They're not, they're not going to be happy losing money. These are ruthless killers, murderers, drug traffickers. They're not going to be happy losing 15% profits. So, you know, you, so just so I understand what so so what I understand what you're saying is you you think that your argument would be because you've got these cartels that are going to be pushing stuff. What we should do is essentially legalize all controlled substances and then try to regulate it. I, I really do, and also too, you do take the crime aspect out of it, where you know so and so is being murdered because they sell heroin, so and so is being murdered because they sell cocaine, so and so is moving on somebody's mm-hmm. territory because they sell this. Okay, so so you, so you would you would say okay okay so um, if I wanted to buy 
heroin or cocaine or methamphetamine or any of the other crap that's out there, um, I would be able to go into a store, and if I'm 21 years old or older, I'd be able to buy it. I mean, I, I think, like, honestly, I don't have all the particulars made out, but I think that there's got to be some type of government control where people can get these substances. And like I said, I'm a hardcore no, no. conservative right-winger, but look at all the crime that's a cause of it. And also, too, look at all these overdoses because kids are buying this heroin. or not even buying heroin. They're buying fentanyl. Right. Where I was talking to someone with the DEA, and they said, you could breathe this stuff on some people and get killed with it, what the Chinese are making. So let's, you know, the cat is out of the bag. I don't know if you can get it back in. Well, I mean, thank, well, I guess I, here's my, for, I guess I, I will give you my perspective. And this is from a perspective of somebody who's never used any sort of hard drugs at all, but did spend, you know, the better part of a decade, you know, chasing, chasing drug dealers in the U.S. Attorney's Office. I, I think if you, if you want to talk about, how communities get devastated. I'm not talking about marijuana right now, but I mean, you, you look at whether it's crack cocaine or whether it's heroin or whether it's methamphetamine. If you want to talk about how communities get destroyed, it's when those drugs get introduced. Now, I understand we have an opioid crisis in this country now, but I firmly believe that if you legalize this crap, you're going to see, if you think we got a problem now, you ain't seen anything. And I guess from a societal perspective, I, I think you, you have to say, no, we want to discourage this. I firmly believe if you legalize stuff, you, you more people will use it. And especially when you look at stuff like cocaine and you look at stuff like heroin and you look at methamphetamine and you consider the addictive nature of it. I understand there are people who are alcoholics who, who can't have one drink, but that pales in comparison to the number of people who ended up getting hooked on heroin or these hard drugs or stuff, and then it's almost impossible to get off. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not going down this route. Uh, here's a text. Medicinal mushrooms help people with depression. Okay. And, and, and yeah, that's, that's the argument that's being made. Well, there's a medicinal purpose for this, so we should legalize it. Well, the truth of the matter is the vast majority of the people who are taking psychedelic mushrooms aren't doing it for medicinal purposes. They're doing it because they, they want to go off on their psychedelic trip. I, I guess I just think that from a societal perspective, from a societal perspective, we accomplish nothing by making it easier for people to engage in mind-altering drugs. And, and that's why this stuff has been illegal, and I think it's, you know, why it should be illegal. Tom in Whitewater. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Yep. Hi. Um, kind of agree along the lines of your last point. Um, you know, why can't I grow a poppy field and then I can make opium? Yeah, it's naturally occurring, sure. Yeah, and then I could, you know, it's not hard to do, time-consuming, but uh, well, well, if, if you want to go down that road. Well, right, that's, no, th- no, thanks for calling. I'm with you. I have a text here from Bill. It says, wonderful, just what we need. More and more people totally high and bombed on substances. God help us all. I guess that's kind of my my sense of this, too. And and I, I look, I, I'm not equating marijuana with cocaine and methamphetamine and psychedelic mushrooms. I am saying that some of the arguments you hear for legalizing marijuana are equally, I guess you could apply them equally. And you know, some people are making it. Well, you know, there's medical science that says in certain circumstances, you know, taking one of these psychedelic mushrooms can, you know, help you out. Okay, to me, that's not a justification for decriminalizing psychedelic mushrooms. Just saying. This is Jeff Wagner.